Parshat Vayechi, um, this week's shir is sponsored by Chavi Hertz. It's in memory of her father, Yisrael David ben Chaim, Zerchon Lebracha. His neshama should have an aliyah. We should all be zeichet sitchias hamesim. I've titled this shir, A Blessing for Your Children, because we're going to talk about the blessing that we give our children, particularly the boys on Friday night. I'm going to have to devote another shir to the particular wording of the blessing that we give our girls. But because Parshas Vayechi mentions the wording and specifically talks about blessing your children using that wording, I'm going to um, focus the share on that today. Let's start with source number one, on page one. It's um, at the end of Bereshis, Parshas Vayechi. The Posuk says, okay, so I'll describe the scene. The scene is Jacob is very elderly, Joseph, the viceroy of Egypt, you know, the most powerful political figure in Egypt, comes to visit him with his two children. And the scene unfolds. I'm not going to go into those details. I've given Shi'urim um, in other years about that particular scene. But it ends as follows. And Jacob blessed them on that day, saying, In you shall Israel Bless Israel being the nation. Israel is not talking about himself. Israel, the tribe at that stage, or the group, the family, the Israelites, eventually going to evolve into the nation of Israel called in the Torah B'nai Yisrael. And uh, in later times, we're known as um, Am Yisrael or Knesset Yisrael. Yisrael represents it. The idea is whoever emanates from me, will bless themselves in you. Something about you, talking to Ephraim and Manasseh, something about you is a blessing for the Jewish nation. How are they going to bless um, their, whoever it is, their children? By the way, not just children. You bless your um, Talmud. You can bless your student, your pupil. You can bless Chatan under the Chupa, Kala, right? Before the Chupa. We, we give a blessing. What's the blessing that we give? Yesimcha Eloikim Ke'ephraim Bechimenasheh. May God make you like Ephraim and like Menasheh. Vayosem es Ephraim lifnei Menasheh. And even though Menasheh was older than Ephraim, he put Ephraim before Menasheh. Okay? Again, I'm not going to the actual uh, description of the scene, I'm just conveying to you that this verse in the Torah delivers to us a very important message, which in the next source we're going to see Rashi um, develops for us. So Rashi commenting on this pasuk says as follows, Yisrael. In you shall Israel bless. What are we talking about? What is Jacob speaking about? It's like talking in code. It's a Bible code, right? What is he saying? Somebody who comes to bless his children. He will bless them by reciting this particular blessing formula. And the man will say to his son, God make you like Ephraim and like Menashe. In other words, this particular formula is the one that should be used as an introduction to the blessing that you give your son. Okay? So Jacob 
in the, at the dawn of Jewish history, even before there was a Jewish nation, before the slavery in Egypt, before Yetzias Mitzrayim, before Har Sinai, set the tone for what it is that we need to say when we bless our children. And the Torah specifically um, instructs us or gives, sets the scene for us by telling us, Becha Yevarech Yisrael. In you, speaking to those two children of Yosef, Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, in you shall the nation of Israel be blessed, specifically through the use of your names as an introduction to the blessing. By the way, we then continue with the priestly blessing. We say, That's the actual blessing. But the introduction to the blessing is always something which mentions Ephraim and Menashe when we're speaking to boys. I told you another time we'll give a share about Yusimech Elohim Kesara Rivka Rachel Valeo. Today we're going to focus on Ephraim and Menashe and the blessing for boys. So now, first of all, I have to say, I have not included this in the sources, there is no mitzvah to bless your children. It's an interesting point. Okay, look, look at what Rashi says. Haba levarech esbonov. Somebody who comes to bless his sons. There's no mitzvah to bless your children. My father used to point out that one of the Ten Commandments is kabed esovichov esimecha. What about having one of the Ten Commandments that you have to look after your children? He says no parent needs to be told they have to look after their children. But children need to be told that they have to look after their parents. It's a very different type of instruction. No parent needs to be instructed with a mitzvah that you need to bless your child. Because your natural instinct, the way that you feel towards your children is such that it's never a burden to bless your children. There's no greater joy and blessing than blessing your children. You know, they say that uh, two parents can look after any number of children, but it's very hard for any number of children to look after two parents, right? It's, it's, it's an unfortunate reality. So Rashi phrases it beautifully. Habo levarches bonov. Obviously, somebody's going to come and bless his child. And he's going to want to know. He's going to ask the rabbi. He's going to phone up the rabbi. He's going to say to the rabbi, how do I bless my, how do I bless my child, right? He's going to want to know how to do that. And you're going to look at the Torah. And the Torah says, in Parshas Vayechi, B'cha Yevarech Yisrael, Yesimcha Eloikim Ke'ephraim B'chim Okay, let's look at source number three, the Hamikdavar. He's the Nitziv. I've only taken a short portion of the Nitziv. In fact, if you look at the Harchev Dovar, which is his notes on his own commentary, he, he expands on this idea quite a bit. But I, I, I'm going to use this as an introduction to my fourth source, which is the Chasam Sofer. So the Hamek Dovar points out something very, very important. Ke'ephraim b'chim I want you to be like Ephraim and like Menashe, right? So, Be'emes ho'yo'oid zera bruche Hashem benechte Yaakov. Says the Nativ, you need to know something very clear. Ephraim and Menashe were not the only descendants, grandchildren of Yaakov Avinu who were good people. It almost sounds, if you're not educated about the family of Yaakov Avinu, as if Ephraim, oh, 
I want all my descendants to be like these ones, not like the other ones, right? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I want them to be like Ephraim and Manasseh. Says the Nativ, don't imagine that Yaakov Avinu didn't have other grandchildren who were wonderful. Can my parents, the Zerach, the Oid Harbe? There was Peretz and Zerach who were children of Yehuda and many others. There were many other great um, descendants of Yaakov Avinu, his grandchildren, who were wonderful. We could have said, Yesimcha Elohim, Keperetz or Kezerach, but we didn't. We said, Ke'ephraim v'chimenashe. Aval, this is why. Aval, Ephraim v'menashe, hoyakol echad gudulosai meshuna mechaveirei. Why were Ephraim and Manasseh chosen specifically? I'm, I'm, I'm speaking here to people with children, and those who are listening online also have children. Is any child the same as any other? It doesn't matter how many children you've got in a family. You discover they're not identical. Remark, even identical twins are not identical. They may appear identical, but they're not identical. They have individual personalities. They have their own quirks. They have their own characteristics. They have their own hobbies. They have their own interests. They have their own levels of intelligence, emotional intelligence. I could go on and on and on. Ephraim and Manasseh were two very unique personalities. Even though they were both children of Yosef, they were two very unique personalities. They had um, their, um, the way that Nativ expresses it, they excelled in very different areas. Ephraim, Hayogodol Batora Vedovek Leloikov. He was a spiritual person. He's, whatever Torah was in those days, whatever the study of God's word was in those days, that was the interest that he pursued. He was a spiritual, religious person. That was his greatness. Was he an accountant? Probably not. Was he a lawyer? Definitely not. Was he street smart? We don't know. It's possible that he was street smart in, in some ways, but that wasn't his greatness. His greatness was as a spiritual, religious, God-fearing, God-loving individual. That was him. That's who Ephraim was. Umenashe. What about Menashe? He was a very practical person. Don't go and ask him a shayla. Don't ask him a halachic question. That wasn't his forte. By the way, he may have known halacha. That's, that doesn't mean he was ignorant of what it is that needed to be done religiously. That wasn't his strength. Play people to their strengths is what the Nativ seems to be saying. If you are an Ephraim, be the best Ephraim that you can be. If you are a Menashe, be the best Menashe that you can be. Yeah, that's also a, a human weakness. We're always trying to be good at things that we're not particularly good at. Why don't we just try and excel at the things that we are good at? And the things that we're not great at, we'll do our best. And then obviously there's people who are better than us who are going to do a good job. I always say, talking about accountants, I don't do my own tax returns. It doesn't mean that my accountant is cleverer than me but he's much better than me at doing tax returns. Do you know why? Because that's what he does all day. And therefore, when it comes to doing my tax returns, I'm going to turn to my accountant. When it comes to a legal problem, I'm going to turn to my lawyer. 
I would expect them, if they're good Jews, when it comes to wanting to know an, a, rabbi, a rabbinic opinion on any matter that relates to rabbi stuff, that they'll turn to me. They won't think that they know it better themselves. Ephraim was good at the rabbi stuff. Menashe was good at the practical stuff. Look at what the Chassam Sofa says. This is source number four. He introduces his piece by quoting the Pasuk, which tells us that how should we bless our children, as Rashi says, by introducing it with the phrase, May God make you like Ephraim and Menashe. Nira, he says appears to me. He had a friend called the Maram Shif, and uh, they were rabbis in a similar area, parts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And he saw that the Maram Shif had written as follows. There's a Gemara that says as follows. From the time of Moses, until the time of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, okay, that's a, by the way a very long period of time. ad Rav Ashi, and from the time of Rabbi until the time of Rav Ashi. By the way, Rabbi wrote the Mishnah. He edited the Mishnah and presented us with the final uh, version of the Mishnayis. And Rav Ashi, together with Ravina, presented us with the final version of the Gemara. Moshe Rabbeinu, of course, gave us the final version of the Torah. So we're talking about three very significant people who delivered texts to us. The text of the Torah, the text of the Mishnah, and the text of the Gemara. So from the time of Moshe until the time of Rebbe, and from the time of Rebbe until the time of Ravashi, there wasn't Torah and greatness in one place, and the assumption of the of Chazal of the Gemara is in one person. That means there were great people, and there were Torah people, but it's not necessarily true that they were the same people. Moshe Rabbeinu had both Torah and Gedulah. Rabbeinu Hakadosh had both Torah and Gedulah. Rav Ashi had Torah and Gedullah. This is the way the Gemara presents it to us. Obviously, as, like all Chazals, it's presented to us in a very dramatic, fanciful way, but it's there to convey an idea that it's not always true that Torah and Gedullah find themselves in the same place, in the same person. Because Moshe, Rebbe, and Rav Ashi had both the quality of knowing the Torah as it was written down at Sinai, and also knowing all the other aspects of the Torah which, co- which, um, uh, which are, uh, come alongside the Torah Shebich Sav, Hushlam, and it was only through them that the Torah was complete. Moshe, Rebbe, and Rav Ashi. V'rak b'misha mis'achid by Torah Gedula, Yachtov, what is the quality of a person who has both Torah and Gedullah? What is the greatness of such a person? What did I just tell you about when I want to do my accounts? I need to go to an accountant. Why? Because I can't do them myself. 
What about someone who has Torah and Gedula? Imagine somebody is what we call, there's an English expression for it, a Renaissance man, right? Somebody who really is good at everything. The Victorians were busy with, with being Renaissance people. They were geologists and biologists and, uh, and psychologists and doctors. You know, you read, if you read the resumes of some of these Victorian academics, you think to yourself, did they ever have time to do anything else? I mean, did they ever sleep? Did they ever eat? I mean, how do they know all this stuff? A Renaissance person is somebody who has greatness in every area that they touch. Moshe and Rebbe and Ravashi are the examples that the Gemara uses of people who have Torah on the one hand and Gedullah on the other hand. What is the quality of these people? They never have to come onto anyone else. They don't have to um, depend. depend, more than depend, they don't have to lower themselves to anybody else. Their greatness is self-evident. It could be that they use other people or associate themselves with other people to assist them but they don't need those other people in terms of having to think through what needs to be done. In other words, they have all the information and they could act on it if they needed to on their own. They don't need to, to come to someone else to deal with something. To flatter. Yes, they don't need to flatter anybody. They have, the, they have monopoly on the truth at every level. But as we know, the Torah is, is the final signature of truth when it comes to these things. And they also have the knowledge of every other aspect of life. All other aspects of life are in, in their knowledge and in their experience. And it's also true to say that if Torah... And the way we are referring to gudula, what's gudula? Worldliness are separated. It could be occasionally, and without getting into uh, too much detail, that we need to allow people who are not great in Torah to take leadership roles. Why? Because we need leadership. And if we completely rely on people whose greatness is only through Torah, then society might not function properly. We need occasionally, it's a remarkable, it's a chasam sofa saying this, we need occasionally to rely on people whose Torah is not as great as the greatest Torah scholars in order to forge ahead and to have a solid and secure future. That's very important. And the, and the chasam sofa actually, uh, he uh, quotes something to, to prove the point. As the Medrash teaches us in Parshas and Tzavim, What does it say in, in the beginning of Nitzavim? I won't ask you to turn to the page. Atem Nitzavim Hayoyim Kulchem. Then it says, Rosheichem Shifteichem. And then, Zikneichem. What's Rosheichem Shifteichem? Rosheichem Shifteichem means the heads of your tribes, right? And then it says, Zikneichem, your elders. So who's Rosheichem? Roshechem is the people with gedula, with the worldliness. What is ziknechem? What does that mean? Your tamite chachomim, your scholars. What comes first? What does Moshe Rabbeinu say first? And it's the medrash. The Chassam Sof is quoting a medrash. He's not making it up. And it comes directly from a verse in the Torah. Do you know what comes first? 
occasionally we need to rely Rashechem Shiftechem before we start asking Ziknechem Shem Hatamide Chachomim. Shelo'a Moshe Rabbeinu Hachurban Vahagolus. Moshe Rabbeinu saw with his Ruach HaKodesh, with his Nevoah, with his prophecy, that there's going to be an exile. There's going to be a diaspora. There's going to be a time when Jews are going to be spread and dispersed throughout the world in different places, with different languages, with different cultures and different customs. And they're going to need leadership. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu saw. Va'oz tzrichim l'roshim l'shtadel b'veisasorim u'malchus. And then you need leaders who are going to make sure that the Jewish interests are best represented in the halls of government and, you know, with the prime ministers and presidents and kings, whichever country you're in and however the leadership looks. But you're going to ask the rabbi to go from his base medrash with his Gemara and go and talk to the president? I'm not saying the rabbi should never meet the president, but that's not who we're going to rely on. You need Roshechem Shiftechem before you rely on Ziknechem. You need leadership. Obviously, that leadership has to completely understand that the source of the energy of the Jewish people, Judaism's uh, main energy source, is Torah. But it doesn't mean they need to be the greatest Torah scholars. Doesn't need, doesn't uh, mean that they have to be the Ziknechem. You don't have to combine Torah and Gedullah in one place. It's nifrodin. Sometimes it's separated. Sometimes you need to have the expert who does this. And you to, need to have the expert who does that. The koidmim lizkenim and the roshim, the people who are at the head, are going to come before the zikenim who are the talmidei chachomim. Avol. Im ha-Torah v'ha-Gedullah be'echod Tomid malas hatoira kodemes. So this is a remarkable thing. Says the Chassam Sofa, when you find Torah and Gedullah in one place, it is always evident that the Torah is superior in that person or in that place to any other knowledge or experience, etc. In other words, the Torah immediately rises to the top. It, be it becomes clear that the Torah is the most important thing in that person's life and in what they have to offer. We know that Yosef, the son of Yaakov Avinu, was a person of what we, what, how we would refer to as a Ben Torah. What that meant in his time we've discussed in other shiurim, because there was obviously no Torah written down in those days. But he was a deeply spiritual person. How do we know that? There's a scriptural reference the Chassam Sofa brings. He's not the first one to bring it. He says, Ben Zekunim. Remember what we said, Zekanim, Ben Zekunim. The hint in the text is that he studied with Yaakov Avinu personally, and he was his personal disciple. He was, as it were, a Zokain, an elder, a Talmud Chacham. Everything that Yaakov Avinu studied at the yeshiva of shame and Ever, he gave over to his son, to Yosef. So Yosef was a ben Torah. Okay, that's one level. We know that Yosef wasn't just the Torah person, he was also the gedulah person. This is a man who emerged from possibly 
the most difficult situation that any human being can find themselves in. He was a slave in his master's house, accused of rape, and was thrown into jail, and emerges to become the viceroy of Egypt. And not just the viceroy of Egypt, you know, you can become a leader and be completely unsuccessful. The most successful leader that Egypt had ever had. He managed to beat back a, a, a drought and a famine by collecting up all the produce and making sure that Egypt didn't starve. This was an incredible individual. This is a perfect example of somebody who has Torah and Gedullah, in one place. Yosef HaTzadik has it all. He's both... His whatever Yaakov Avinu taught him spiritually, he's the only one of the um, children of Yaakov who's known as Yosef HaTzadik. He's Joseph the Righteous. He was, he had, he had um, studied with Yaakov Avinu and he'd continued, I guess, even in Yaakov's absence as he was in exile or as a slave, to contemplate the highest levels of religious knowledge, whatever it was in those days. But at the same time, he was a practical, worldly person who in any given situation would rise to a place of leadership. He was a natural-born leader. So Yosef was one of these people for whom Torah and Gedullah were b'mokem echad. Look what the Chassam Sofer says. He says it so beautifully. He parses the words of the Posuk so beautifully. Abal bevanov nechlak. So what happens with Yosef's children? We see this with our own children. They don't inherit exactly who we are. They don't become who we are. They inherit individual traits. We can see in our children, this child has this side of me, and that child has that side of me, but they don't have the whole. And that's what happened to Yosef. He had a, an Ephraim who had taken the Torah side of him, and he had a Menashe who had taken the Gedula side of him. So Yosef had it both, but Ephraim was only one, and Menashe was the other. Ephraim osak batoira, vayogodobachochma. He was a ben Torah. Ephraim was a ben Torah. Umenashe oyogodol bememshaltoi, umemuna albeisoi. He was somebody who was great in his knowledge of management, and he managed his home, the home, etc. He was a, a fantastic administrator. But was he, by the way, it doesn't mean he knew nothing about Torah. It just means that wasn't his greatest quality. It wasn't Torah or Gedullah at the highest level, Bamokem Echod. Now look how he, Chasim Sofa, parses the Posuk. What's the curious aspect of these words? What do we say afterwards? What should the Posuk have said? In both of you, right? It doesn't say that the Posuk says in the singular. Right? Yaakov Avinu was talking to Yosef. He's saying to Joseph, in you shall Israel bless. In you, Yosef. You've got both qualities of Torah and Gedullah. How are they going to do it? 
שישמחה אלוהיכם כאפרים וכמנשה. It's not enough that my child should only be like Ephraim or only be like Menashe. I want my child to have to the maximum possible ability both the qualities of Ephraim and the qualities of Menashe and be like Yosef. You should bless the, the children to be like you. Both Torah and Gedula in one place. And in that situation, Torah will always be the most important quality. And that's why Ephraim, who was the younger child, was put before Menashe, because Menashe is the older one, would have been the naturally, uh, natural one that we would have thought should have been put first in the sentence, but that's not what it says. It says Ephraim and then Menashe. Why? Because if you're going to absorb the qualities of both, then Torah should always come first. But the idea here is Yisrael. So the Chassam Sofra says that really what we want for our children is that they should excel in every quality. Is it going to happen? Of course, when we give blessings, any blessing is always what we might call wishful thinking, right? We're hoping for the best. We're hoping that the qualities that our children have should be in the best possible way. And that's what the Chassam Sofra says. Let's go on to the next, the next piece, which is the Orachayim. He says this is the most amazing blessing of all time. Why is he saying that? Because he says the pasuk doesn't make any sense. What do you mean? Should have just said, He blessed them and he said, Why does he have to say, Says the Arachaim. I'll read the translation that I put together here. The Torah means that Jacob gave them such a full measure of blessings that everybody said that the simplest way to bestow blessings on Jewish children in the future would be to mention that they should be blessed as Ephraim and Menashe were blessed on that day. You know that you have a momentous occasion or some memorable event in your life and you say later on in life, do you remember that day? I wish today would be like that day. Or I wish that my success could have the same level of excitement as the success I had on that particular occasion. Says the Arachayim, Do you know why we say, Because the energy, the level of blessing on the day, that day when Yaakov Avinu blessed Ephraim and Menashe was so incredible that we always hark back to it and we say, we want to bless our children. You know what blessing we want to give to our children? It should be the same level of blessing that Yaakov Avinu gave to Ephraim and Menashe on that momentous day. The Radak says a beautiful idea. I've just put the translation here. This is source number six on page two. He bestowed an additional blessing on them on that day, saying, Do you know what he says? This is so beautiful. Do you know what the true blessing is? That you are the source of blessing. Isn't that amazing that every time we bless our children, we mention 
Ephraim and Manasseh. It's not just that they were blessed. Do you know what the greatest blessing is? That they became the names that we use in every blessing that we have given for all time. Can you imagine everybody gives a blessing and says, you know, I want, I want, to, bless, I want to bless my children. They should be just like you. And every single week, you become the source of blessing. That in and of itself is a blessing because what you have is so special and so amazing that everybody wants to have a piece of that. It's not jealousy or envy. We want to bask in that incredible light. Says the Radak, whenever an Israelite wants to bestow a blessing on his son, he will preface it with the words, that in and of itself is a blessing. That's what it means. Yisrael. The next piece, source number seven, Eli Meritzbach is a professor of mathematics in Barilan University. He is originally from France. The Meritzbach family is a French family from Alsace, as he speaks about in the first part. Uh, he's a very interesting man. He's a, he loves studying Tanakh and he has written a lot about Tanakh, even though he's a mathematician. Um, and this piece is beautiful. He wrote a whole piece on the blessing that you give your children every Shabbat. And I've just taken two pieces from what he wrote in this uh, English translation. Uh, and we're going to read it together. I think it's, it's incredible. Um, the first piece... Uh, he talks about his own personal experience, a personal thing that he heard from his family. The second piece is drawn from various sources and summarized beautifully. Here is an explanation, he says, I heard from my mother of blessed memory, who told the following story of her father, a devout Jewish doctor from the city of Mulhouse in Alsace in France. Despite his living in great isolation, in a tiny Jewish community situated in non-Jewish surroundings, he managed to educate his 12 children, 12 children, to follow the Torah. By the way, Dr. Meritzbach has 10 children. Just want to tell you. Both Ephraim and Menashe grew up and lived in a hostile, non-Jewish environment without Jewish education. Nevertheless, they grew up to be good Jews, believing in God and following in the ways of their forefathers. So, too, we bless our children that even in difficult surroundings, amidst the Gentiles, bear in mind that this practice of blessing your children every Shabbat was instituted in Jewish communities outside of Israel and after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. Our children will succeed in growing up according to Jewish tradition, keeping the Torah. That's a bracha for your children. It's all right to be like Zerach and Peretz. They grew up in Eretz Canaan, in the house, in the household of Yaakov Avinu and Yehuda. Big deal. They should be like that. I mean, how, how, how is that such a bracha? But to bring your children up in a hostile environment, where, you know, in, in Mulhouse in Alsace in France, or in Beverly Hills, California, or in New York, or in London, or in Sydney, Australia, or wherever you are, and, you know, the environment is not so Jewish. Of course it is in your home and in the shul, but you walk in the streets, it's not Jewish. Even in the schools, or on your smartphone, 
or, you know, in every aspect of life. It's not so easy to be Jewish when not everything around you accords with what it means to be a good Jew. Therefore, we deliberately mention Ephraim and Manasseh. And he adds, this is a little scary, even living in Israel, there is good reason to pray we may succeed in educating our children and safeguard them against the temptations offered by their contemporary surroundings. We shouldn't forget that even in Eretz Yisrael, even though we are in control of Medinat Yisrael, even in that environment, there are distractions and temptations which may lead our children away from who they need to be. And therefore, we need to give a bracha to our children as often as possible, whenever we can. You see how they turned out? You see how Joseph's children turned out? He married the daughter of Potiphar. He was the viceroy of Egypt. He was busy. He was working hard. In the, in the heart, in the, in the very center of Gentile life, his children turned out to be like Ephraim and like Manasseh. I want that for my children. I want a piece of that, right? That's the first piece. Another explanation, says Dr. Merzbach, bears on the essence of the entire book of Genesis. Throughout this book, we are constantly faced with strife between brothers. I've spoken about this many times, and Rabbi Sachs has beautiful pieces about this. Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers. Every brother situation is one of conflict. Every single time you have brothers in Bereshis, it's conflict. As long as there is fighting among brothers, says Dr. Merzbach, one cannot establish a nation. The nation of Israel begins to emerge only after fraternal strife has ceased. Only when there is true peace between Joseph and his brothers does the book of Genesis come to an end and the book of Exodus, Shemos, in which the nation of Israel assumes shape, begins. Prior to that, there is no nation. For only when there is brotherhood within the family can one forge a nation. Ephraim and Manasseh are the first pair of brothers in the Torah who do not fight with each other. Can you imagine that? We're in Vayechi. We're right at the end of Bereshis. The whole book. Right? It's 50 chapters. We're in chapter 48. Okay? This is the first time we find a pair of brothers who are not arguing with each other. There's no fights. Even when Jacob crossed his hands giving preference to Ephraim over Manasseh, there was no jealousy between them and the brothers remained united. Therefore, the patriarchal blessing specifically mentions Ephraim and Manasseh. Mothers and fathers in blessing their children expect, hope and pray that there will always be brotherly love between their children and therefore they bless them with this blessing. I'm davening for my children. I don't want you to be like Yosef and his brothers. I don't want you to be like Yitzchak and Yishmael. I don't want you to be like Yaakov and Esau. <coughs> I want you to be 
like, um, like Ephraim and Manasseh. One of the worst things that can happen to parents is to see strife and jealousy between sons and daughters. One child can easily feel that another has received more, and from there the way to jealousy is very short. By mentioning Ephraim and Manasseh, we try to avoid this by offering a prayer that it never happens. We're going to look now at something slightly different as we examine this very important aspect of Jewish tradition, which is blessing one's children. So we know that every Shabbos you do it, but uh, what exactly do we do? How do we bless our children? We, we cover their heads with our hands, right? That's what we do. We put our hands... Where, where does that come from? The hands thing. Birkas Kohanim. What do the Kohanim do? They lift their hands. They put their hands... Obviously, they can't put their hands on every single person in the community. So they put, they, they put their, both their hands... They have a special way of doing it. They put their hands out. But when you're blessing your child... You can do it individually to your child because not a hundred people, right? Really, the Kohanim should do it to each person. Thanks so much. Should do it to each person, but they can't, so they do it to the community. But the idea is that you should have both hands. The question is, uh, are you a Kohen? A Bas Kohen. Could you do Bas Kohanim? No, no. Could I? I'm a Levi. Maybe. I'm sort of related. I can't do it, right? I'm not allowed to do Bas Kohanim. So what what is the... What is the uh, um, source for using two hands? So we're going to look at it. The Torah Tamima, first one, the piece we've got is in Bamidbar. The piece in Bamidbar discusses um, Birkas Kernim, and he says a very interesting story from the Vilna Gaon. Where exactly does this custom come from of putting the hands on the head of the person who is being blessed? You know, when you bless a chosen or a kala or your children, he doesn't mention children, that you put the hands on the head. By the way, I'm not sure that every community has this minig of blessing their children on Friday night. Many do and some don't. So I'm not sure, I don't know if the Torah Tamima came from a community where they used to bless their children every Friday night. But in any event, it's a very common practice, as he notes, to put both hands on somebody's head when you're blessing them. Doesn't matter, by the way, if it's your child or if it's anybody. That's what you normally do. Do you need to? Could I just say, I mean, if somebody sneezes, and I say, bless you, do I put my hands on the head? No, of course not, why? Because they know I'm talking to them, obviously, bless you. So why am I putting my hands on my son's head? Why can't I just stand there in front of my son on, on Friday night and say, with my hands behind my back, Yesimcha Elohim Kefraim Vechem Nasheh, etc. I could hug him. Why am I putting my hands on his head? So it's an interesting question. Let me, you never think about these things. So we saw, we saw that, okay, okay. We, but how many hands did he put? Only one. Ah, ah, okay, we're going to see that. It's very interesting. So why didn't he separate them out and put two hands on each of their heads? So we're going to see Rabbi Yaakov Emden talks about that. But look what, um, look what the Torah Tamima says. Achari ki mizbair have a seder bracha zu miyuchedes rakle 
to use two hands to give a bracha is something that's unique for priests. It's not something that was instructed for ordinary people. Normal Yisrael or Levi doesn't put her hands out when they're giving a bracha. That was an instruction that was giving, given to the Kohanim. Uluzarim isur It's even possible to say that for a Zor, for a non-Kohen to give a bracha using his hands is something which is an isur. It's a prohibition because you're not a Kohen and you're giving the impression that you are a Kohen. So how are you allowed to do it? Don't tell me it's human contact. You're not allowed to do something, you're not allowed to do it. Even if it is human contact, find another way of having human contact. Hold their hand. Using two hands seems to be showing that you're a Kohen and you're not a Kohen. You know what's going to happen? Somebody's going to see you using two hands. The next day you're going to go to shul, they're going to give you a Leah. They're going to give you a Kohen. You're not a Kohen, right? You know, the, you know the joke. They say, are you a Kohen? I don't know. Well, you sure you're not a Kohen? Well, I don't know. I don't think I am. My father was. Right? I mean, you know, if you're either you're a Kohen or you're not a Kohen. If you're not a Kohen, then you shouldn't be pretending to be one. Va'ani shomati me'ish emunim. He says, I heard from a reliable person. This is the Torah Tamima speaking. Who was the Torah Tamima, by the way? He was a nephew of the Natsiv and a son of the Rav of Navardak who wrote the Orach HaShulchan. So he was a very significant um, a, a Lithuanian rabbi, born in around 1860, and he died in 1940, during the time of the Holocaust, although I think he was murdered in the Holocaust, I think he was just an old man. He died in the, one of the ghettos, or one of the um, areas where Jews were being held, and uh, he wrote this incredible parish on the Chumash, but he wasn't a rabbi. Even though he trained to be a rabbi, he wasn't a rabbi. He worked in a bank. He was a wealthy man. He came to visit America a few times. There's pictures of him in America. And uh, he, he doesn't look rabbinic, but, you know, he's got a close-shaved beard and a, he's wearing a bowler hat. Uh, he looks uh, very unrabbinic, in fact, but he wrote this incredible commentary on the Torah, Torah Tamima, uh, in which he quotes every chazal relating to the psukim in the Torah, and that offers his insights into the connections between the Torah Sheh Baal Peh, and the Torah Shebichsav, incredible man. Anyway, he comes from this very Lithuanian, this Litvish background, and he gives this, he delivers us this story about the, the Gra, the Vilna Gaon, the Vilna. Beirach Esagon Marein Rabbi Levi Landa. Anyone know who Rabbi Cheskel Landa was? He was the Noida Behuda. Later became very famous as the chief rabbi of Prague. He died in the 1790s. Uh, I think he was, if I remember correctly, he was born in, um, he was around the same age as the Vilna Gaon, but the Vilna Gaon was slightly senior to him. And he was a chosen because at that time he was in Vilna. That's what it sounds like from this story. And he was given a blessing by the Vilna Gaon, by the Gra, at his chuppah. Hands on on the Noid Behuda's head, he only put one. Why did he only put one? It doesn't tell us why he only put one. He didn't tell us, but this is his theory. <coughs> they asked him, why did he do it? 
The only time you see that somebody gives a blessing with two hands is Kohanim in the temple. The Zula so he is quite taken by this, that the Vilna Gaon, when he gave a bracha, only used one hand, didn't use two because he didn't want to be like a Kohen. He doesn't say it, but he says this seems to be bizarre because we know that everybody uses two hands. Why would people use two hands if, as the Vilna Gaon says, using two hands is not acceptable because that's only something that the Kohanim can do in the Beis Amikdash or when they're doing Birgas Kohanim in Shul. He doesn't answer the question, but for that we have to look at the Siddur of Rabbi Yaakov Emden. Just for two minutes an introduction, I've said much about Rabbi Yaakov Emden over the years. I've written about him in my book. Rabbi Yaakov Emden was an extraordinary man, not just because of his long-standing feud with Rabbi Yonis and Eberschitz, but because he was one of the great uh, rabbinic scholars of the 18th century, and he ventured into territory that other rabbis um, did not venture into. For example, he wrote a new parish on Mishnais. Why did he write a new parish on Mishnais? Because he felt that the existing perushim had large um, areas which they hadn't addressed and he wished to address them. So wherever he felt there was a material that had been left out from existing commentaries, he stepped in and he added commentary. A remarkable commentary of Rabbi Yaakov Emden was published in the 1730s on the Mishnais. <coughs> he had his own um, print facility in his home. Not like today, by the way, where you go, you go to uh, Office World and buy a printer. Having a print facility in your home was an entire floor in his home, the basement. It meant that he had to have a printing press. They had to have experts who would put together the letters, metal lettering, which would create the blocks that could use, be used to print. He would print his own svarim. He printed a three-volume work on prayer, but not just on prayer of every day or just every day in Shabbos, on every prayer that we have and all the customs surrounding prayer. He did all the research and he didn't have Google and he didn't have the Barilan University disk and he didn't have Safaria and he didn't have all the very many tools that we have today to research. All he had was his library and people who he could ask who were experts in whatever field it was, both in philology, that means the style of the Hebrew that was used, in customs, in halacha, in every aspect of um, the day-to-day -day life of Jews that revolves around things that Jews say. So all the davening, all the prayers that we say, he wrote about in his Siddur. Today, you, you can find it today, it's called Siddur Yaivetz. Since then, there's been obviously many other perushim that have been added, but it was such an original work when it came out in the 1740s. Everyone used it and it continues to be used until this day. He writes about the fact that people come home from shul on Friday night and bench their children or their talmidim. It seems there, have been, there seems to have been a minhag, a custom, that a Rebbe would bench his, would give a bracha to his Talmud, to his student as well, also on Shabbos. Look what he says. Min hogam shel Yisrael, 
It is a custom of the Jewish nation. To bless their children on the eve of Shabbos. Both fathers and rabbis. Either after davening, in shul I guess, or when they come home. Because that is the moment when you have this uh, bounty of blessing which you can tap into. Shabbos is a moment of blessing. So let's use that moment, let's tap into it, and the Shefa is there, let's make sure that we are going to use it to its best possible ability. It's very important to involve an adult to make sure that we can draw this blessing from the moment of Shabbos for our children, for our young children, because a child doesn't have that ability. A child can't, doesn't know how to tap into this great energy source because they're only children. And we as adults, because we have a deeper understanding of the world, we know that this is a special moment. So instead of us tapping into it selfishly, we should take that and pass it on to, to the one that can't tap into it themselves. It's, a, it's an incredible moment. Let's use it to the best possible ability. The Chol, and you should know that that blessing is going to not only be great, but it's going to be more effective for young children because they have never tasted the taste of sin. So that blessing is going to find an easy home in a child. A child can't sin. Even if a child does something wrong, that doesn't mean that they are sinners because they don't understand what sinning is. In the same way, the blessing can find its home, a natural home in a child. But the truth is that the, that the custom is we also give a blessing to our older children, even though they are adults, because the, that is a custom that exists and it, and it makes perfect sense. You as a parent can draw from the blessing of that moment and give it to your children. Umanichim, look what he says. Shtei yedehem arashehem. Rabbi Yaakov Emden writing in the 1740s. The minig is we put both hands on our children when we bless them. As we find when anyone gives a blessing that that's what they do. If you're a parent, you're a rabbi, you're a friend, you give a blessing to someone, put your hand on their head. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu did when? He blessed Yoshua. Was Moshe Rabbeinu a Kohen? Is this brilliant? You see, that's why you have to be a Rabbi Yaakov Emden. Right? It's brilliant. He just draws it straight out of the Pasuk. Was Moshe Rabbeinu a Kohen? No. Was Yeshua his son? No. He was an ordinary fellow giving a blessing to an ordinary fellow. I know you're going to say he's Moshe Rabbeinu. So what? In terms of not being a Kohen, he's ordinary. He's a Levi. I'm a Levi. And yet when he gave a blessing to Yeshua, he put his hands on his head. And that became the established practice for all time. That's what you have to do. Put both your hands on the head of that person who's going to be blessed. Kitoiv ayin hu it somehow it projects the fact that you, it's a meaningful goodness that you want to give over to that person. Not just that you're standing there, you know, a distance away from the person, 
it conveys, as you say, that human connection between you and that person. You put your hand on the head. That's why the priests, when they give the blessing of Berkas Kernin, they do it with two hands. And then we find, when we talk about the angels of the Sabbath Eve, Sha'amru Chazal, Chazal says, So the Malochim, the angels, when they come to bring in the Shabbos, they put, as it were, their hands on the heads of the man, of the woman, and they bless them. We see that there is this concept of putting your hands on someone's head in order to convey, to give over that blessing. Now we come to the question we asked earlier. What about Yaakov Avinu? How many hands did he use with Ephraim and Menashe? One, one each. Crossed over his hand, but that's not important. Why didn't he just say, uh, excuse me, hold on a moment. I'm going to bless him first, I'm going to bless you second. And then do two hands for each of them. Don't imagine that he, he was trying to hold back in any way. There wasn't anything negative about that. In fact, quite the reverse. It was because of the situation he was compelled to act in that way. What happened? What did Yosef do? He, brought, he held his children in his hand, one on one side and one on the other, and he brought them both forward to Yaakov Avinu at the same time. So what was Yaakov Avinu meant to do? Well, he should say to one of them, excuse me, I can't do you now, I've got to do the other one first. He was, had them both in front of him, he had no choice. He didn't even want to make in any way some type of jealousy between them by preferring one over the other. Because they'd come at the same time to receive his blessing, therefore he was going to bless them both at the same time. The fact that he crossed over the hand was to convey a totally different message. But he certainly wasn't going to reject one and favor another and prefer one over the other because that would not have been good. But to give a blessing, you're going to give it with both hands. That is the message of Yosimcha Elakimke Ephraim Vechem Nasheh and that is the message of today's share. We'll leave it here today.